back in our study of Acts this morning. And for the last two weeks, we've been studying Acts 15 in what we've been calling the Jerusalem Council. And uh, so you can go ahead and open your Bibles there. Acts 15. And really in this chapter, one of the greatest threats to the mission happens that we've seen so far in the book of Acts. Some of the conservative Jewish Christians had had come to Antioch, and they were teaching specifically that Gentiles must be circumcised, and they must submit to the law if they want to be saved. Now, you and I know that that was uh, in direct contradiction to what Paul was teaching. They were saying that they, they must first become proselytes or members of Israel through circumcision and obedience to the law. And they were saying they can't be saved as Gentiles just by faith alone. Jesus, Faith in Jesus, simple faith, it can't cleanse them from their previous defilement from their idols. That was their argument. And it was pretty powerful because under the Old Covenant, a lot of those things were true. And so the shift has taken place from the Old to the New now, and that raised a lot of of questions. What does this mean for, for Gentile inclusion and how, how are they saved? Now, to be clear, Jews weren't saved by works in the Old Testament. That's not what we're saying. But to come in faith in, under the Old Covenant would mean that you would become part of Israel. You would submit to circumcision and to the Mosaic Law and the sacrificial system and everything that went along with that. That's, that's how your faith would manifest itself under the Old Covenant. But in the New, as we've learned, things have changed. Now, as you can imagine, uh, Paul and Barnabas debated this heavily until the Antioch church sent a delegation up to Jerusalem to get their official position on the matter. So after a lot of debate in the Jerusalem church, Peter finally concluded that they should not try to put the yoke of the law back on the necks of these Gentiles. That's not what they need to do. This would actually test God. Since God has already declared that these Gentiles are are saved by faith alone. He's cleansed their hearts through faith. And in fact, Peter says that both Jews and Gentiles are saved through faith by the grace of the Lord Jesus. So it's not just a Gentile thing. Jews actually come in the same way through faith in Jesus, by His grace, i.e. not by the law. And James, the Lord's brother, also speaks up and he agrees with Peter. He shows that the Old Testament prophets actually predict God's inclusion of these Gentiles from long ago. So we could say, we learned last week and the weeks before, that theologically, the issue has been solved. The Gentiles, you and I, non-Jews, don't need to be circumcised to be saved. And we rejoice. Uh, They're saved by faith alone, and, and the Jews are too. So, James confirms really what Peter was saying. And now that they've solved this theological issue, there's still one more issue that remains. And this is where it gets a little confusing in the rest of this chapter. This issue is not necessarily theological, it's more pastoral. And it's this question. How should the Gentile believers now relate to Jewish believers whose consciences have been really shaped by the Mosaic Law? Does that make sense? For centuries, faithful Jews had lived very distinctly from the Gentiles. They had lived sort of set-apart lives from the idolatrous nations. 
Many of the laws under the Old Covenant were meant to create this separation so that Israel would not worship pagan gods, pagan idols. And now that the law, the Mosaic law, had been fulfilled in Christ and everyone set free, the Gentiles would would be tempted to be insensitive to the consciences of Jewish believers. So, the Jerusalem church needs to lay down some guidelines that's going to help foster unity among the Jews and Gentiles in the church. And that's the background of, of what we're going to, what we're going to see today. And lest we think we're kind of, okay, we're back here in this first century. What about today where we're at, you know, in the 21st century right now? Well, as we're going to see, these guidelines are going to be incredibly relevant uh, to us. We're going to learn a lot from these, these things that James says here and the way the church works this out. And we're not dealing with Jew and Gentile divisions, really, um, right now in our church at TBC. But the principles behind what James says are going to be very helpful for us. So I'm going to explain the text, kind of minimal application as we go, and we're going to get to the end, and I'll really give you some implications at the end. So hang with me as we work through, as we work through this. It's going somewhere. So what we're going to see today, this main idea, is that James declares that the Gentiles are free from the law, like we've seen, and that their freedom means they are free to be holy and pursue unity. Their freedom means that they're free not to live how they want to live in sin, but they're free to be holy like their Lord. And they're free to pursue unity in the body from people that are very different from them. So that's this main idea that's sort of overlaid over this whole, this whole section here. And for our, today, our story is going to divide in, into three scenes. So we're going to pick up kind of on the tail end of what James says, the things we didn't get to last week. And we're going to see how this, this decision that James makes, this pastoral decision, is, is worked out, um, as they as they implement it back to the church in Antioch. And then as the church receives this, this uh, decision. So, the outline is pretty simple. With um, you know, th- these are James' pastoral instructions, and, and the first scene we see here is the decision that's made uh, for these Gentiles. So, I'll just pick it back up with all of what James says here, and but we're going to key in on the last verses. So, look in verse thirteen. After they had finished speaking, James replied. Here's where he agrees with Peter and really makes the theological decision. Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree. This is rooted in the Old Testament, just as is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. Therefore, here's the inference. Here's what we're keying in on today. Here's the pastoral decision. So they they solved the first issue of Gentiles saved by the law. No. But how should now the Gentiles relate to the Jewish believers? Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. First thing. Don't trouble them. But we should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols 
and from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. We'll talk about those. Why do you say that, James? Because, or for, from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him. For he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Now, wait a minute, Peter, or James. I thought you just said that Gentiles were free from the law. This sounds a lot like the Old Testament law. What's going on here? Well, we'll talk about that. James makes this decision here up front that they shouldn't trouble the Gentiles, but instead they should write to them a letter and give them a few stipulations, a few ways that they should live in light of, of, of the, the current issue. So the first thing he says is that they shouldn't trouble the Gentile believers. So what does that mean? Trouble them with what? Well, this is another way of saying what Peter said earlier, that they shouldn't be burdened with the Mosaic law. We shouldn't put this yoke back on their necks. Don't trouble them. Don't annoy them. Don't overburden them is, is the idea. James is in essence saying that the same thing as Peter. These believers are free from the stipulations of the Mosaic law. So first thing he says, right out of the gate, we've already seen, shouldn't trouble them. But instead of doing that, James, what he proposes is that they write a, a clarifying letter to sort of tie up some of these loose ends to these Gentile believers that are back in Antioch that had been troubled by the people that came from their own church, you know, and were teaching something different. So they got to clarify some things in this letter. But at first glance, it looks like this letter adds mosaic stipulations back to the Gentiles who are just said to be free from the law. So look again in, in 20 and 21 here. It says they should abstain from things polluted by idols. There's four things here. Number one, polluted by idols. From sexual immorality, number two. Number three, from what's been strangled. And number four, from blood. And so before we get into why James says this in detail, it's, it's important that we figure out exactly what he's telling them to stay away from. What's he saying that the, the believer should abstain from? And he says four things. So if our outline, what, what are these items? Well, the first item he says is, uh, the ESV translates this from the things polluted by idols. Literally, it's just the pollutions of idols. Now, this is likely a reference to meat that's sacrificed to an idol during a pagan worship festival. So if you were in the nations and they were, they were worshiping their gods and in their temples, they would have these festivals where meat was common and meat would be sacrificed and then everybody gets to eat. And meat was a, a not a rare commodity, but it, it was not as common as it is here in America. So this would have been a, a, a fun thing for the community. But the Jews believed that this meat was defiled because it had been sacrificed to a pagan god, not the god of Israel. And what made matters a little more complicated is you could actually get this leftover meat, uh, I'm sorry, you could get the meat originally at the temple and eat it there at one of these festivals. So you can write down 1 Corinthians 8.10. Paul actually addresses this. He makes a mention that some people go to the temple and eat the meat there in the temple. But often, more commonly, the leftover meat was sold after the festival in the meat market. And again, Paul addresses that in 1 Corinthians 10. And even a believing Jew would likely have had a hard time eating this meat 
if he knew that it was previously sacrificed to an idol, just because of how his conscience had been shaped by the Mosaic law. And it probably, to a Gentile believer, wouldn't have been that big a deal. I mean, we know that's the case from, from Paul's letters. They don't think it's a big deal. They're like, look, idols aren't real. We know the one true and living God. This is good meat. It's being sold for a discounted price in the market. We're going to buy it and eat it. You know, like that's the, that's the rationale. And Paul says, that's fine. You know, like that's, that's, you're, you're right. Your conscience has been rightly informed. But that's not all Paul says, and we're going to get to that in a moment. But just get, panning this out, this is food sacrificed to idols. And he's saying, James is saying, Gentile believers, we think you should abstain from this. We'll talk about why in just a minute. Next thing he says is sexual immorality. That's the second thing they should abstain from. And this makes a little more sense to us. Um, actually, it makes a lot of sense. It's a broad term which refers to any kind of sexual misconduct. But in this context, what's interesting to kind of pick up is that sexual immorality was often committed at the pagan temples with the temple prostitutes during these festivals. So it's tied to idolatry. Any kind of sexual immoralities we're going to see is, a, is idolatry. But this in particular was tied to, to, the, to the worship of these gods at these festivals where they would have eaten the meat. So do you see the, some of the connections? They viewed it as a form of worship. And the temple viewed it as a form of revenue building. These first two items go together since they were both associated with idolatry. And you can see them resurface again in a symbolic way in Revelation 2, 14 and, and 20. So Revelation 2, verse 14 and verse 20, you see these two ideas, the eating meat to idols and sexual morality coming together in a sort of symbolic way. And it's just saying the Gentile believers, you know, these Gentile believers who are, who are coming out of idolatry were often tempted to return back to this sort of way of life or this pleasure, pleasurable experience. I mean, think about it. It's like a giant party with good food and sex. So it, it could have been very, was very tempting. We know from the letters uh, to, of, of Paul to the churches. Believers, Gentile believers are having a hard time coming out of this because of, of the attractional pull that sin had in this, in this culture. Now, these final two items should also be viewed together. Uh, number three, he says they should stay away from strangled things or things that have been strangled. And from blood, number four. So the strangled things are, are a reference to meat that hasn't been properly drained of the blood that's in it. So it's common to strangle an animal and then, you know, take the meat off, of, off the bones and cook it up and, and eat it that way. And the, the blood wasn't properly drained. And then number four is a kind of a corollary way of saying that. Stay away from blood is a, a reference to the blood that's still in the meat. So in both cases, Israel and, and those Gentiles that were sojourning among them were not to eat animals that had been pro, not properly drained of blood. That's from Leviticus 17. So that was, that was explicitly commanded under the law for these Jews and the Gentiles that were, that were living among them under the Old Covenant. And most Jewish believers would have had a really hard time 
cooking up a piece of meat if they knew it hadn't been properly drained or if they saw they bought the meat that had just was just saturated with blood blood was sacred and it was part of what atoned for sacrifices under the old covenant and lord had forbidden them to eat that and so they didn't want to they didn't want to associate with that so that's the background that's what these things mean but why does james say this if they're free well, from my own study, I can see at least two reasons why, they, why, why James would say this. And this is where it's going to be helpful for us. So why does he tell them to refrain? Well, the first reason is he wants the Gentile believers to be free from past idolatrous practices. He wants the Gentile believers not to go back to idolatry. And I'm rooting that mainly in his forbidding of sexual immorality. Because that's a that's a very clear moral issue. Some of these other ones aren't as clear, but this is a very clear one. So it, it makes sense that he wants them to, to flee from that and, and worship Christ alone. In other words, they're free from the law of Moses, but that freedom does not mean they should go back to their idolatrous ways. Christ had to die for that, to cleanse them from that. And so they shouldn't go back to participating in this kind of temple fornication and prostitution or any other form of sexual impurity because Christ has has set them free to be holy like their Lord. So to commit sexual immorality is the very opposite of, of what Christ has saved them for. That's the first reason, but that's not the driving reason. I think the driving reason is the second reason. I mean, that's a big one, but he wants these Gentile believers to be sensitive to the consciences of Jewish believers. He wants them to be sensitive now to the consciences of Jewish believers. The weaker brothers, that's how Paul puts it in Romans 14. Their consciences are are weak, weaker than the Gentiles, because they think that they would be in sin if they did some of these things. And Paul says they would be because they're not doing it. They're not eating this meat from faith. So Gentiles that are coming into the church need to be sensitive to this issue. He knows that there are Jewish believers all over the Roman Empire that are steeped by the Mosaic law and its customs as a way of life and culture. Look at verse 21. That's his point there. He says they should abstain because from ancient generations... Moses has in every city um, those who proclaim him. That just means he's, even in the Roman Empire, as the Jews were scattered out all over, all over the Roman Empire, there were little synagogues, and the, the Torah was being read and taught on a regular basis, and that the synagogues are where the, the churches were planted, typically, or at least out of the synagogues. So the base of this church, which are Jewish believers, are all going to be sensitive to the law. We're going to see this come up again and again as we work through the book of Acts. So he's just saying Gentile believers need to be conscientious of the sensitivities of the weaker brother of their Jews, of the Jewish believers. If the Gentiles were flaunting their freedom in Christ, that would not bode well for the unity of these new assemblies. Just think about that. So James says here that they're free from the law, yes, But they are free to do something else, to pursue unity. They've been set free, so now all they have to worry about is loving their brother and whatever's best for their brother or sister in Christ. They're free to pursue unity, to limit their own liberty for the good of others. 
James was concerned for the unity of this new church, and he wanted the Gentiles to also prioritize this. Now, that's the decision that's made here. And then they implement this decision um, in verses 22 and following. So we'll just call this next phase the implementation. All I'm going to do is read this because it just flows right out of right out of this decision. He says, Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church, this is verse 22, to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. So we get the letter that's recorded for us here. And here's what they said. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers, notice that, who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. Greetings. So they, he's very, they're very clear up front to, to note that both are brothers in Christ. There's a unity there. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, notice the unity language again, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We've therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. So they want to be really sure that what the Jerusalem church has decided here gets committed to this new church in Antioch. For it seemed good to us, or for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. That you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So in this this letter is preserved for us. We get to see exactly what they wrote to these, these believers. And we see the same thing we just saw, that we just talked about. The, James and the apostles and the elders of Jerusalem are concerned for unity. They want to make sure that these Gentile believers in Antioch know they're on the same level in the church and that they're free from the law. The law didn't have anything to do with it. Jesus had everything to do with it. They side with Paul and Barnabas. They speak very highly of Paul and Barnabas. You see all that happening. So there's this, this concern for unity. And then out of that, they give them these four stipulations. So that was how they, they implemented James' decision there in, the, in verses 22 and 29. And that leads to the third scene here, which is how the church actually received the letter. And this is beautiful. Verse 30. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch. And having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, notice the reaction. They rejoiced. Because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers who had, uh, to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. So just a few observations. The church receives this letter and there's much joy as a result of the decision made in Jerusalem. And then they send off Judas and Silas, these Jewish brothers, with peace, it says. So the threat, all the way at the beginning, that we saw two weeks ago, with this threat of, of, of disunity has been resolved by the end of this chapter. So beautiful, beautiful picture here. And just very instructive for us to see how they are responding joyfully to even sacrificing their liberties for the good of 
of the other believers in the church. So, uh, sorry, should have erased that. Takeaways for us today. So what do we do with, with this? I, th- I think we learn a few really, really helpful principles here from this, from this section in, in chapter 15 that we just saw. Number one, you and I as Gentiles, even the Jews, if there were Jews among us, we are free in Christ from the stipulations of the Mosaic law. That, that clearly is taught in, in chapter 15. So all the people that try to read Leviticus and other things and try to apply that today and put people under that today, theonomists and all other kinds of things, that's going against what's taught here in chapter 15. Gentiles are free from the stipulations of the Mosaic Law. You and I are free from that. And that's because Jesus fulfilled the law perfectly. If we were to go back to the Gospel of Luke, there's multiple points. He's not just a, a moral human being. He obeys kind of civilly and ceremonially the things that that the law decreed. He was circumcised on the eighth day. Every year when he was a man, he journeyed to Jerusalem uh, to offer the proper sacrifices. There's just at every point, Jesus was blameless under the law. So he fulfilled it perfectly for us in our place, even as Gentiles. And Jesus absorbed all of God's wrath for the transgressions against that law. The Jews had never kept it. So it's hypocritical for them to try to put that back on the Gentiles right now. So they'd never kept it. And we, you know, as Gentiles, good grief, we were way off, you know, and and out of bounds just with our idolatry. But Jesus absorbed all of God's wrath for all of that, and now He alone can, can offer the cleansing through faith in Him. So if today your conscience is burdened by your sin and your transgression against the law of God, you know that you're in sin, flee to Christ and He will transform and cleanse you. It's not by any of your working or striving that you're made right with God. It's totally by resting in Jesus for what He's done for you. He's our covenant head. And so all of our confidence and assurance is sort of bound up in Him. So we're thankful. That's why we sing to Him and sing His praises. So Jesus is our our fulfillment but the law is still helpful and it's useful to us today, even though it's, it's not operative. It's not on us in the sense that it was on the people in the Old Covenant. And we've, we've talked about some of these before, but it, it teaches us the biblical storyline. You know, as we, as we work through the Old Testament, it creates helpful categories for us as we see its fulfillment in the New. It teaches us what God is like, His nature and His character. It teaches us what we're like as men and humanity. And it provides us with so many promises and warnings about what God's going to do or won't do or is, you know, if you hear Him or if you don't. And so we need to know the Old Testament. I'm not saying we forsake it. We need to know it. It's scripture. It's inspired. It's good. But we're not under it. We're under Christ. So there's a lot of other questions about the law. I just want to promote to you one, one resource. It's called 40 Questions. I've got it in my bag, but it's called 40 Questions about the Christian life and the law or something like that. Just think 40 questions and the law. And it's by Tom Schreiner. Tom Schreiner. 40 questions and the law. And it, it goes through a lot of, a lot of really helpful items here. So, you and I are free from the stipulations of Mosaic law. But, we are free, number two, to be holy. Free to be holy like Jesus. So, in Christ we've been given His Holy Spirit. And like we saw last week, we're the end-time holy temple of the Lord. We don't want to go back to the temples of the idols. 
We want to pursue the holiness that Christ would have for us. And this is progressive. We're going to become more like Him and less like the world over time. And and don't be fooled. Don't think, okay, we're not in that culture anymore. We're in the 21st century. We're not that far away from the culture James is writing to. We live in the midst of a culture that, that worships pleasure. It worships it. And it worships sex, and it worships selfish fulfillment. And these fleshly desires are still resonant within us as believers. We've got to learn to put those to death and walk, learn to walk by the Spirit and His leadership in our lives. And the only difference between our culture and theirs is the temple of, of false gods are in our bedrooms, it's in our pockets, through our smartphones and TVs and laptops. And you go in and are tempted to offer sacrifice to these satanic false gods through pornography. Believing that they have something to offer you that Jesus doesn't. You've been very deceived. You refuse the freedom and joy available to you in Christ because you choose to worship another God at another altar than Christ's. And we've got to see it this way. You choose voluntarily to submit again to slavery and to perpetuate that slavery of those that you indulge with. So don't be deceived. This enrages the spirit that's within you. He is jealous and is yearning for your sanctification and holiness. And he's going to bring discipline upon those that he loves. This is a worship issue, guys. We have to see it that way. And if he's not disciplining you and you're getting away with your false worship, you've got to beware. Do you actually know the Lord? That's a question that has to be, that has to be asked. But the glory of this is that He saves us in the midst of this trash, okay? He comes in and you can repent today, you can be fully forgiven and begin the path of lasting freedom and transformation. This is what God wants for His church. And it's possible in the Spirit. And the first step, if if you're enslaved to this, is not to be ashamed. I mean, it is shameful, but... We get it, okay? I counsel people on a regular basis in this stuff. I came out of this stuff. And so we're going to come alongside you with the truth and to help you work through these issues. So the first step is to be honest about it. Guy or girl, okay? Come to us and we will help you by the word of God. And James wants us to avoid this sexual immorality in all forms because he knows it's, it's tempting and alluring and he knows it's destructiveness and what's at the root issue here. So he tells us we're free, but not to sin. We're not free to go back. We're free to pursue the paths of holiness and purity, which, which really result in our joy. And, you know, I'm out of time here, but the last thing here is, is we're free to pursue unity. We're, well, another way to put this is we're free in, in order to serve the preferences of others. This is really needed in your generation. Okay? Because people kind of get a taste of theology and the freedom from the law, and then they run rampant and they flaunt it to the detriment of the weaker consciences of others. So you guys all have the issue, if you're a liberty student, decided for you. If you're over 21, you know, but if you're a liberty student, you're not, it's this, you're dishonoring the Lord if you possess or partake in alcohol. Like that's, that's according to the liberty way. But let's pretend for a moment you're not at liberty and you're over 21, so you're not, Committing, you're not disobeying Romans 13 by drinking underage. 
Let's say that's the case. You still have to be very careful. Number one, that you're not allured back into the idolatry of drunkenness. But number two, that you're not offending the consciences of those people around you that it may be, that, that may be sensitive to, they may be sensitive to those things. We as a pastoral staff believe we are free to drink alcohol. We are not defiled by drinking alcohol. But we do not do it. Because we love the body. We want to see the body purified and, and, and we, we don't want to put a stumbling block before anybody in the congregation. And there's a whole lot of things like that that we do. We voluntarily limit ourselves for the, out of love for the good of others. Not because we can't, but because we, we, we prize something more than that, those gratifications, even though we're free to do them. So that's the principle, and we've got to grab a hold of that, whether it comes to... It took us, like, years to start playing drums at our church. <laughs> because, not because we were catering to some faction, but because we genuinely didn't want to offend or, or, or destroy the consciences of those who believed that it was sin. Drums is a non-issue. I can listen to whatever I want to listen to all week long and come here and sing and be totally content. It's a non-issue. But when we got to the point where we believed that it wasn't, it, it, we weren't sinning against the people's consciences that had been taught that before, which was not true, that's, then, then we made the transition after a lot of teaching and a lot of reforming of the conscience. So we've got to grasp these truths here, guys. We're free to be holy and we're free to love others sacrificially. So let's pray.